you would turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 20. And you'll see that this passage has much in common in terms of theme uh, with our verses of the year. So 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. If, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, in these moments together now, would your spirit be at work? Help us to take inventory of our hearts. And in the midst of conviction for sin, would you bring comfort and encouragement in Christ and the gospel? This we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a number of months ago, this was probably during more of the lockdown months of, of the COVID year, uh, Laura and I watched a World War II miniseries. And in this particular series, it depicted the German occupation of the British Channel Islands, the islands in the English Channel off the French coast. And as you watch this miniseries, you have this growing sense of danger and dread. What's going to happen to these people? Do they, are they aware of what's going on and what might happen? And you'll see some of the characters are suspicious and vigilant. Others, naive and welcoming. And still others thinking it's better to tolerate and compromise with the enemy rather than fight, to minimize the damage, so to speak. Well, knowing the historical context of this particular period in time and what actually happened, it makes you want to talk to the TV as you're watching it. I don't know if you've done that before, but, you know, wake up. Don't you realize what you're doing? trying to be friends with the enemy, you'll play right into their hands. Why? Because of the reality of the situation. Not just how things appear to be, but how they really are. Well, God has told us very clearly the reality of our situation. As Mark referenced our verses of the year earlier, Ephesians 6 is a key passage about spiritual warfare, but spiritual warfare runs throughout Scripture. From Genesis through Revelation, the truth is we are at war. This is where we live. This is the situation we find ourselves in. You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to pretend it's not there. Or even not believe that it's there. 
at all. But it is reality nonetheless, and it will have a bearing on your life. Now, it's easy to affirm the spiritual battle out there somewhere. The things you see on TV or read in the news. But it's closer to us than we often think. The Puritan William Gurnall in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, a whole text on the Ephesians 6 passage, makes this comment early on in the book. He says, The stage where this war is fought is every man's soul. It's not just out there. It's in here, too. It's where we live. So what does this mean on a practical level? How do we wage the good warfare, as our text puts it? Well, it might be good by asking, first question on your outline, why is it good? Why is this warfare good? If you're like me, sometimes you feel like, I wish this war was over. Why do I have to keep fighting? Why do I have to keep grinding against this enemy? I wish it wasn't here. Well, first of all, I just want to give three brief reasons why this is a a good warfare. Just reminders from Scripture. First of all, God wages this war. It's not our war, ultimately. It's God's war. And think about it. In light of that, it must be worth fighting. This is true, holy, just war. In fighting, you are following him and being an imitator of him. This is one of the many ways in which we imitate God. Ephesians 5.1, we're called to be imitators of God. Well, God in Scripture is called a divine warrior. He fights against the enemy. And we can imitate him by putting on the armor and fighting in his strength. You are participating in his war against all spiritual opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Westminster Standards talking about Christ's office as a king. What does that mean? One of the things it means is that he conquers all his and our enemies. We have the same enemy. We are participating in his war. And one practical encouragement in this is we don't fight alone. He is with us. Our helper is the maker of heaven and earth. There is no one greater than he. Brings us to the second point of why this is a good war. Because he's with us, it's a victorious war. God triumphed over his enemies through Christ's death and resurrection. And now we wait for the consummation of that victory when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And crushed under our feet. When Christ comes back for final judgment. I don't know how many of you are reading in our reading challenge. But recently we finished the book of Revelation. And started back over in the New Testament. And of the many things found in that amazing book of Revelation. 
is we get snapshots of the return of Christ. And what we see in every one of those is Christ coming back and it's game over. There is no struggle. No matter how much the enemy gathers its forces to fight, there is no struggle or close victory. You know, if you, if you watch a sporting event, you, some of them, you know, the NBA playoffs going on right now, someone may win by two or three points or a last-second shot. It's not like that when Christ comes back. It's not close. It's sure and, de- and decisive. So contrary to what you may be tempted to believe or feel, this battle, this war, is not a losing battle. Or a lost cause. Our weakness, our sin, the sin in the unbelieving world, and even Satan himself and all his forces combined are no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are only overmatched apart from Christ. Remember that and be encouraged and not give up in this war. And then thirdly, waging the good warfare is a good sign of our spiritual condition. You know, one of the many metaphors for the Christian life as a whole is that of a soldier in this war. From the time of conversion to the time of death, when we go to be with the Lord, we are in this war. Now some have suggested or insinuated that there's something wrong if you have to fight all the time or struggle against your sin and against temptation in the Christian life. Maybe you just don't have enough faith. Maybe you're just doing it wrong. My question is, is, is it bad for a soldier who is in a war to fight? Or is it fitting for a soldier to fight in the middle of a war? The reality is you cannot put sin to death by the Spirit, as Romans 8 tells us to, without a fight. So don't be discouraged that you have to fight, daily even. This also means we cannot coast and wage the good warfare. If you're not fighting, you're in essence on the other side. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutrality in this war. So those are some brief reasons why this is a good war that we're involved in. So how do we do it? Point two on your outline. We wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience in our text Paul here is charging his son in the faith, Timothy, a minister in Ephesus, to wage the good warfare in accord with all his prophecies regarding his calling in the midst of opposition from false teachers. Timothy is charged to remember his calling and hold faith and a good conscience. What's the meaning of those phrases there? The meaning of faith. Here, the emphasis is on faith as a trust or belief rather than a body of doctrine, though 
those two things are very closely connected. But here it's on trust. And secondly, and we'll spend a good amount of our time on this next one, the meaning of a good conscience. Having a good conscience is that one's moral self-consciousness and evaluation reveals that he has been obedient to God. Calvin summarized this good conscience as an integrity of the heart. It involves continually evaluating the direction of our hearts at any given moment. With that said, it's, we probably do not have a good conscience if it's been a long, long time since we took inventory of where our hearts are. Much like, I don't know if you like gardening or working in the yard, if you leave your garden for a season, for a good chunk of the year, what happens? It gets overrun by weeds. So also our hearts. Now, the concept of a good conscience is talked about in various ways in the scriptures. Uh, it's referred to as a clear conscience. Living according to what we profess. That's how Paul uses it later when he's talking about qualifications for deacon in chapter 3. It's also associated with godly sincerity versus earthly wisdom. And earlier in chapter 1 here, in verse 5, we see that a good conscience is associated with a pure heart and sincere faith. The word for sincere there means without hypocrisy or without play acting. Are you guilty of play acting your faith? Or in the words of, in 2 Timothy having the form of godliness but denying its power. How do, we, how do people deny its power? By being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's in that context. Now, we don't need to overcomplicate what a good conscience is. Most of us sort of intuitively know what that means. However, evaluating your own conscience is a difficult thing to do. Why? Because sin is deceptive. Quite frankly, it's hard to be honest with ourselves. It's hard to be honest. That's why it's so easy to see sin in other people and not in our own hearts. So let's take a moment and drill down a bit on this point question of how do we reject a good conscience? Or as it says earlier, swerve from a good conscience. I want to mention five common ways, and this list could go on probably on and on, but I'm going to list just five common ways, and, and many of these are interrelated. First of all, we reject a good conscience when we talk about God without understanding. In the immediate context, Paul mentions false teachers earlier in the chapter who are engaged in prideful, vain, or empty discussions about the law. And he says, but they don't even know what they're talking about. They're talking about a lot of spiritual things, 
things about God and His Word, but they don't understand what they're talking about. Do we know what we're talking about when we talk about the things of God? About what we say He is doing or not doing? About what He's leading us to do or leading us not to do? Or what's important to Him and what's not? Are your conclusions, the things you affirm and talk about, Are they biblical? Do we know what we're talking about? That's one way we swerve from a good conscience. Now based on the contrast in verse 5, in the following verses, it would appear that their swerving was largely due to hypocrisy. Words without practice. All talk and no walk. Outward conformity, but inward rebellion. Which leads us to our next consideration. The second common way is that we reject a good conscience when our Christianity becomes merely public, but not private. One person in public, another in private. Our families can see more of this than we can oftentimes. Your spouse, your children. Here's what I find. I find that when we don't practice what we profess, we tend not to believe what we profess. The two are very closely tied together. Another danger is that we tend to coast on past experience with God. You know, how many times have you heard someone say, you know, when I became a Christian, I was on fire for the Lord. You know, if you go on, not so much now. You know, there was that golden period in my life when I walked with God. Wasn't that great? What about now? Coasting on past experience with the Lord without a present pursuit is contrary to a good conscience. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. It says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See what it's saying Without constant practice, pursuit of the Lord, we won't be able to properly distinguish between good and evil in our lives. Those things become gray, imperceivable, and we're easily fooled. A third common way that we reject a good conscience is when we talk about God but don't listen to him or talk to him. Listening to him through his word, talking to him in prayer. Do you recognize his voice? Do you still recognize his voice? The voice of the good shepherd? Or have you let it be drowned out by the thousand other voices 
in the world and in your life. Without his voice, we easily become discouraged and cynical. I recently listened to an interview with John Piper. It was about a particular issue, but he made this comment in passing that stuck with me in terms of the cynical side of things. He said, don't let the imperfections of men turn you away from the perfections of Christ. Are you letting that happen? There's a lot of imperfections of men (laughs) that we can see, that we can hear, even our own imperfections. Don't let those things turn your heart away from the perfections of Christ. Listening to God and talking to Him fosters faith in a good conscience. Another example of this would be what I call those inner monologues that we all engage in throughout the day. On your way to work, out on the golf course, in your room at night getting ready to go to sleep. What's, what's turning? What wheels are turning in your head? And how do you dialogue with those? How do you make sense of those things? My challenge to you is talk to God about it. Invite him into those inner monologues and dialogue with him. It's amazing how much time we waste, and I'm guilty as anyone in this room of that. Introspecting all the time without talking to him. This is one of the ways we acknowledge him in all our ways, as Proverbs 3 puts it. Fourthly, We reject a good conscience when we try to manage sin rather than mortify it. And what I mean by mortify is to put it to death by the Spirit. Romans 8.13 We reject a good conscience when when we try to manage our sin rather than put it to death. Another way to put it is this. To sin in moderation and think you're making progress is to believe a lie. The nature of sin, as we find in Scripture, is progressive and destructive. It's not to be tolerated to any degree. It's something we're to put to death. Think of it this way. Um, Most all of you have a smartphone. I've had one for some time now, and I'm very protective of it. I don't want to I don't want it to look like it's got cracks and hit by a sledgehammer like, like some you, you see. But sure enough, one day I dropped it, fell in the kitchen floor, picked it up, looked at it. There was a little crack in the corner. I'm like, ah, oh, great. Well, it's, it's not too bad. Well, weeks later, as I'm seeing the sun reflect off the phone, it looks like somebody hit it with a sledgehammer. <laughs> I mean, there's cracks all over the place. Same could be true for your windshield on your car, right? Something that starts small. Same is true in our lives. With sin. It may seem small, but it progresses. 
Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, observes this. Sin is of an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, until it has the soul to the very height of sin. And I would add to that, sin that the person who's in that position would never have imagined that he had gotten there. Our conscience, where is our conscience in relation to that issue? That brings us to our last consideration. Number five, we reject a good conscience when we seek to have faith in the big things. Salvation, eternal life, the afterlife, but not in the small things the daily things of life. Our conscience is only as good as it relates to the smallest things in our lives. I'll give you an example. Many of you can identify with this. Saying, you know, you hear someone share something and telling them, I will pray for you about that. But you don't. You don't follow through. That may seem very small. Oh, it's just not a big deal. Pretty soon, prayer becomes a social custom. The idea of prayer, rather than a conviction concerning the truth. The truth of who God is and who He is for us as our helper. This undercuts faith and a good conscience. It flies in the face of Hebrews 11.6, which tells us that by faith we know that God exists, but he also rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, if we're not careful in the small things, God becomes this social custom idea that we throw out. We never really talk to him or actually pray, but it's just a nice thing to tell people. That undermines our faith. You will have a hard time trusting God with the big things if you don't trust Him with the little things. As often as the case, the little things prepare us for the big things, don't they? And this is where we find one of the common schemes of the devil. Don't worry about the small things. It's just a little sin. It won't have any effect. But giving in to a small sin makes way for committing greater sins. You know, most, you know, to borrow from the imagery of the passage, about making a shipwreck of their faith, most, and I'm no boating expert, but most, I would assume, who are uh, steering the boat don't see the rocks and steer right into it. Rather, they drift into the rocks, unaware of the danger. 
if we're to keep faith and a good conscience, we must trust God and fight in the small things. Those little moments, those little decisions that we make on a daily basis. Now, why is this important? What we're talking about is no game. It's literally life and death spiritually. Because waging the good warfare will keep us from making a shipwreck of our faith. Indeed, Scripture tells us of those who reject a good conscience, defile it, and even sear their conscience. We have two examples here in verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander. In Scripture, both are associated with false teaching and opposing Paul. They're associated with blasphemy, leading to ungodly practice. That sounds like the world, doesn't it? The world out there? Wrong. Apparently, these individuals were leaders in the church. And what does Paul mean? Maybe this stuck out to you when we read it earlier. What does Paul mean? Handing them over to Satan. This is a way of speaking of the concept of excommunication. Putting someone outside the church as an unbeliever because they have denied their profession through word and deed. With the hope of repentance. This reminds us, this warning here, reminds us that it's easy to fake it. To do the play acting I mentioned earlier. To honor him with our lips, with our hearts far from him. Scripture contains many sad examples of individuals who did just that. Judas. 2 Timothy mentions Demas, who was in love with the present world and had abandoned Paul and the ministry. I want to give you an encouraging reminder in the midst of this. Paul says in this very chapter, he used to be a blasphemer, among other things, a murderer. Opposing Christ. Remember that God saves even the chief of sinners. So if you're sitting here this morning feeling conviction for these things, look to Christ. He is our sufficient Savior. Look to Him in faith. Today, if you hear His voice, Don't harden your hearts. Deal with your sin. Another thing this passage reminds me is that Christ doesn't fake anything. He is true. His word is truth. His love is genuine. He is worthy to follow. He will not fool you in following him. There won't come a time when you wish you hadn't followed after him. 
How will you pursue holding faith with a good conscience and avoid making a shipwreck of your faith? This gets to our response. You've heard the saying, I'm sure, the devil is in the details. When we say that, we mean, you know, it's one thing to have a nice idea or a plan, but working it out in the details is the hard part, making it happen. Well, in light of the spiritual war that we are in, the devil is certainly in the details. That is one of his primary tactics, as we've seen, the small things. Is Christ in the details of your life? in order to hold faith and a good conscience. And if not Christ, what is it that's holding you back? Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a sobering passage. We need to be reminded of these things. We easily coast in the Christian life and cease to have a good conscience. We play act. We say one thing, do another. Lord, would you help us? Forgive us for our sins. Help us to repent of these things and to follow after the Lord Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen.